Well, that did sound like good singing, even with the sniffles and everything else going on, so not bad at all. I want to ask you to turn in your Bible to Exodus chapter 33. You young people that were at the youth Bible study, you're going to hear some things that were very, very familiar to you uh, that we talked about on Friday night at our young people's Bible study, um, taking a slightly different theme and and focus than what we were looking at Friday night, uh, but the same verses of Scripture. But we'll start reading in verse number 1 in Exodus 33. We'll read through to the end of verse number 17. There's more to the chapter and and more that goes on uh, after Moses is interceding on behalf of the people. Uh, Moses turns perhaps to a little bit more of a personal direction. But I want us to read these 17 verses here in Exodus 33, beginning in verse number 1. And the Lord said unto Moses, Depart, and go up hence, thou and the people which thou hast brought up out of the land of Egypt, unto the land which I swear unto Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, Unto thy seed will I give it. And I will send an angel before thee, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, unto a land flowing with milk and honey. For I will not go up in the midst of thee, for thou art a stiff-necked people, lest I consume thee in the way. And when the people heard these evil tidings, they mourned, and no man did put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said unto Moses, Say unto the children of Israel, Ye are a stiff-necked people. I will come up into the midst of thee in a moment and consume thee. Therefore now put off thy ornaments from thee, that I may know what to do unto thee. And the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by the Mount Horeb. And Moses took the tabernacle and pitched it without the camp, afar off from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of the congregation. And it came to pass that every one which sought the Lord went out unto the tabernacle of the congregation, which was without the camp. And it came to pass when Moses went out unto the tabernacle that all the people rose up and stood every man at his tent door and looked after Moses until he was gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass as Moses entered into the tabernacle, the cloudy pillar descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle. And the Lord talked with Moses. And all the people saw the cloudy pillar stand at the tabernacle door. And all the people rose up and worshipped every man in his tent door. And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face, as a man speaketh unto his friend. And he turned again into the camp. But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. And Moses said unto the Lord, See, thou sayest unto me, Bring up this people, and thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Yet thou hast said, I know thee by name, and thou hast also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight, and consider that this nation is thy people. And he said, My presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. And he said unto him, If thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. 
For wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not in that thou goest with us? So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. And the Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken, for thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. Amen. We'll end there at the end of verse number 17. Let's seek the Lord in prayer and ask his help before and as we come to consider these verses. Let's pray. Our Father, we do rejoice that we can be men and women confident of your presence with us. You have told us through Christ, I will never leave thee or forsake thee. And we thank you for that promise in Scripture. And as we consider tonight the subject of your presence with your people, we pray that you would speak to every heart, encourage us in the things of Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Having and knowing the presence of God is really one of the distinguishing marks of a Christian. In these verses, the Lord, at the beginning, tells the children of Israel that He is going to remove His presence from His people. He is no longer going to manifest Himself to them as He had been doing before. I'm going to take for granted that you're all very familiar with the basic overview and, and theme of the book of Exodus and the basic storyline of what happens in the book of Exodus and just take for granted your your previous knowledge of that. But you'll understand at the beginning of the book we're introduced to this character Moses. And uh, shortly into the book, in chapter 3, Moses finds himself there in the wilderness and he comes to that place that we are all very familiar with, the burning bush. And the Lord reveals Himself there to Moses at that burning bush. And one of the key promises that God gave to Moses in that episode was in the words, certainly I will be with thee. The strength of that promise fueled Moses to go back to the courts of Pharaoh and demand to Pharaoh, let my people go. It was in the strength of that knowledge that God had promised, I will be with thee. You remember when Moses was there at that bush, he argued and complained back to the Lord, and he said to the Lord, basically, I'm not a good public speaker. How how can I do this? Well, you'll find in Exodus 4 and verse 12, another one of the Lord's promises in this context. He says, I will be with thy mouth and teach thee what thou shalt say. And so we have this theme with Moses over and over. The Lord gives Moses this promise, I'm going to be with you. And that promise that Moses received from the Lord fueled him and energized him and encouraged him as he went on with his ministry to go there back to Pharaoh. All during the episodes of the ten plagues, we see the Lord coming and and speaking directly to Moses and and communicating with him and, and demonstrating to Moses and in essence, to all of the people, I'm with you. I'm on your side. I'm for you. I'm going to help you in this. After that tenth plague, and the children of Israel finally did actually leave Egypt, and they were there marching toward the Red Sea, eventually going to the land of Canaan. They come to the Red Sea, and again we see that the Lord was with them. The Lord had manifested Himself to them as a cloudy pillar 
by day and as a pillar of fire by night. And you remember when the Egyptian army advanced and the children of Israel were scared for their lives because here came the most powerful army on planet earth to destroy them. We read in Exodus 14 and verse 19, And the angel of God which went before the camp of Israel removed and went behind them. And the pillar of the cloud went before their face and stood behind them. And it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. And it was a cloud of darkness to them, but it gave light by night to these, so that the one came not near the other all the night. Here, the children of Israel saw a visible, if you will, a visible manifestation of the presence of God with them. God was with them, and it was undeniable. And then they crossed the Red Sea in the mighty miracle of the parting of the Red Sea and the children of Israel go across on the dry ground. And again, the Lord is with His people. And they travel along and they're they're headed toward the promised land. Happy day. They come to Mount Sinai. Chapter 20, Moses goes up the mountain and he receives from the Lord the Ten Commandments. And the Lord was with His people. The Lord was with Moses. And the Lord was speaking to Moses. And there was this manifest presence of God with His people. And then we come to this in chapter 33. And something drastically has changed. Now God is saying, well, go on into the promised land. But I'm not going with you. You're a stiff-necked people. And my presence is going to be removed. I'm not going to manifest myself to you in the way that I've been doing for these past years. I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm going to remove myself from you. You go on. I'll send an angel. He'll clear the land for you. But you're on your own. You're on your own after that. My presence is not going to be with you. And that devastated the people. It devastated Moses. And so what I want us to look at this evening is the subject of the Lord's presence, the vital need that we have as believing people for a knowledge and experience of the Lord's presence with us. And so the first thing I want you to see from these verses is that sin, sin removes the Lord's presence. Sin removes the Lord's presence. I don't know how the structure of your Bible is, but you might need to turn back a page, back to chapter 32. And you'll see in verse or I'm sorry, you'll see in chapter 32 that horrible episode when Moses is up on the mountain and the people are very discouraged. They don't know if this man's ever going to come back. And Aaron gets this bright idea of creating this golden calf. And he asks the people for their jewelry, earrings and bracelets and necklaces and whatever. And he melts it down and he fashions this golden calf. And the people began to worship this golden calf, this image. This idea that they got from Egypt, they had seen this kind of worship before in Egypt, and they were simply imitating and mimicking what they had seen before. And they began to worship this golden calf as if it were Jehovah. Because you remember Aaron told the people, he pointed and said, behold, the God that brought you up out of the land of Israel, or I'm sorry, out of the land of Egypt. And so they're worshiping this calf. Moses comes down and he, he hears Joshua, he and Joshua, and Joshua says, it sounds like, sounds like war. What's going on? And there's this ruckus of idolatrous worship 
and you know the aftermath of all that. Look back at chapter 32, 32 and look at verse number 26. Moses stood in the gate of the camp and he cries out to the people, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. You remember Levi was the, the tribe of the priests. And so verse 27, Moses said here unto those Levites, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, But every man is sword by his side, and go in and out from gate to gate throughout the camp, and slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses. And there fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. Like I said to the young people on Friday night, they don't make preachers like they used to. These Levites gird up their sword and they went through and they slew their brethren. They slew their neighbors because they had committed this great idolatry. Now in the context, what I I think we need to understand, this is perhaps a by-the-way point, but I think maybe for some clarity this is needful. I think these 3,000 that were slain were not just your run-of-the-mill Israelites. I mean, there were obviously more than 3,000 of them that were worshiping this golden calf. I think what we're to understand here, and and the reason I say this, um, well, let me tell you what it is, and I'll tell you the reason. Um, The 3,000 that were slain were 3,000 Levites. These were the priests. These were supposed to be the spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel. But these were the Levites that had entered in this idolatrous worship that had had perpetuated this, had continued this on. And they were the ones that were slain. I I argue that way because later when you come to the numbering of the tribes, the numbers for the tribes, the tribe of Levi is rather significantly lower than the number for the rest of the tribes. You know, theoretically the tribes have been, were dispersed out, family units, whatever, and, and, and theoretically pretty close to an equal number, but the Levitical tribe is much less. And I believe it's in the aftermath of 3,000 of their men were, were slain uh, as a result of their sin, as a result of this idolatrous worship. And this is their stiff nakedness that the Lord is, is dealing with, and this is their sin. And the Lord says, this is, can I put it this way, this is a deal breaker. You've broken the covenant. Your sin has broken the covenant that I have made with you. And we see from this, and we see from the slaying of these spiritual leaders of Israel, that God takes sin very, very seriously. He can't just let it go. God deals with sin. And He dealt with it so strongly that He said, the presence that you have known, my presence that you have been experiencing, I can't go with you anymore. I have to remove my presence from you. Back in Exodus chapter 23, this is when Moses was on Mount Sinai still. You remember when Moses was on Mount Sinai, it was more than just the Ten Commandments. He received the Ten Commandments, but then in several other chapters, 25, 26, 27, he received the instructions for building the tabernacle and where all the rings are supposed to go and what kind of skin this is supposed to be made out of and how the Ark of the Covenant was to be built. And he receives all these instructions as he's on the mountain there. But it's in chapter 23 that God promised to be with them as they went into Canaan. This was part of God's covenant dealings 
with his people. And back in chapter 23, he had promised to send an angel with them. And that angel that's described in chapter 23 is the angel of the Lord. What we understand from that terminology in Scripture, a pre-incarnate appearing of Christ. I want to deal with something that's in, in the text here. If you look at chapter 23, look up at verse number 34. Therefore now go, lead the people unto the place of which I have spoken unto thee. Behold, mine angel shall go before thee. And so if you notice, if, if you're holding a King James Bible in your lap, you'll notice that in verse 34 that word angel is capitalized. Now if you have another translation that you're looking at, you'll know that that word angel is not capitalized. Now, some of the translations, just as a matter of course, don't necessarily translate pronouns and don't necessarily translate other titles of Christ as consistently as the King James tries to do. But I think it ought not to be capitalized here in chapter 34. Because if you come down into chapter 33 and... um, Sorry, you look at verse number... Oh, I'm all, I messed up here. Thank you. Verse number 2, And I will send an angel before thee. There, you see, even in the King James, that word angel is not capitalized. And the children of Israel understood that this was not the same promise that had been given in chapter 23. In chapter 23, it's clear, I think it's undeniable, that this is the angel of the Lord. This is the presence of Christ with His people. And now the Lord is saying, I'm not sending Him. This is just a created angel. This was different. This was not the Lord's presence. This was something different. And it caused the people to lament. And, and we see in verse number 4, the, the, we, we, it's called evil tidings. right? Evil tidings. But it's all because of their sin. That God was going to remove His presence. He was going to send just a, a regular angel, Michael, whoever, whatever, I don't know, but an angel was going to go before them. He was going to clear out the land. God was going to keep His covenant that part. He was going to, God had made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and He wasn't going to break that. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob hadn't sinned this way. It wasn't their fault. But God was going to send them in, and then you're on your own after that. It's because of sin. The worst place that God can ever leave you is leave you to yourself. When He removes that sense of His presence, that's a devastating place to be. And that's where the children of Israel here found themselves. When Moses goes to intercede, uh, look over at verse number 16 of chapter 33. When Moses goes to intercede on behalf of the people, you see part of his argument here in verse 16, for wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? How are people going to know that we're your people? Is it not in that thou goest with us? Is that not the distinguishing characteristic that makes us different from the heathen nations? Is that we have your presence? And this was a devastating place for the people of Israel to be without the presence of God. God's punishment here to the people for their sin was that he was going to remove that sense of his presence. Now, I don't want that to be confusing. Because is it not true that when we study the, the nature of God, that God is omnipresent? I mean, obviously, God is everywhere. So how can God be omnipresent 
and at the same time say, well, I'm not going to reveal my presence to you. To answer that question, I've made up a new word. I hope you'll understand what I mean. God is omnipresent, but he is not always omnifelt. He's omnipresent, but he's not always omnifelt. And that's what he's removing. He's, moving that, he's removing that sense of his presence. He's removing that manifestation of his power. He's removing that manifestation of his glory. This is the part that we're not going to get into, but you look at verse 18 where Moses said to the Lord, he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. That's ultimately that manifestation of the Lord's presence. If I can make a a passing point of application here, when the children of Israel got into the land, verse verse 2 fulfilled, the angel goes before, drives out the heathen, and, and here's Israel, they're in the land flowing with milk and honey, they're in Canaan, they're where they're supposed to be. But they don't have the presence of God. The surrounding nations don't know and understand that. The children of Israel would have gone into the land and they would have continued there with the reputation of being the servants of Jehovah, the Most High God, while all the time not having the presence of God with them. They were there on their own. But yet, under the guise of being servants of Jehovah. You see, you have to understand something of the religious nature of the day. These ites that are mentioned in verse 2, they were all city-states. They were all individual nations. They They were all warring with one another all the time. And they were all polytheistic. They worshipped many different gods. They had their own supreme God, but while worshiping their supreme God, they also gave credence to all of the other gods. And if the Hivites destroyed or beat the Amorites or whatever in a battle, then the Hivite God would get another tick of recognition. And the other nations would, at least for a time, hey, the Hivite God's really powerful. We better not offend him. We, we need to give more sacrifices to him. And so this was always a battle of who's my God stronger than your God. You know, this is like playground. My dad can beat up your dad kind of nonsense, right? But this is, this is what they were dealing with. And so here's the children of Israel. They'd already defeated Egypt. And news travels, right? The Egyptian army was buried in the Red Sea. And it was being passed around to all these nations. Hey, watch out for Jehovah. This God Jehovah is for real. This God Jehovah beat the Egyptians. This is all superstitious. You understand what I mean. This is all superstition. But here's the children of Israel. Now they're in Canaan and all these other nations are are beat down. And supposedly the reputation of Jehovah just skyrockets. But yet Jehovah's gone. He said, I've removed my presence from you. You're all under the guise of, of my power You're all under the the guise of my name, but it's really just a bunch of smoke and mirrors. I'm not there. I'm not with you. And the point of application that really is quite convicting for us all is that it's sometimes amazing what professing, professing Christians can accomplish without the Lord's power. It's amazing what the church can get done without the presence of God. 
and, and we drive by them all the time. We, we hear about them all the time. Huge, massive congregations. Well, where's the power of God? Where's the presence of God? Strong, multinational national organizations. But where's the power of God? Where's the presence of God? Even a good reputation with the heathen. But where's the presence of God? That's a searching question to our heart. How much can we get done without God's presence and without God's power? Well, on the face of it, a lot. But it's all just a bunch of smoke and mirrors. It's just a bunch, it's, it's a farce, it's a facade. And so that emphasizes to us such an important thing that we're desperate to have the Lord's presence. Just because a congregation is large doesn't mean it doesn't have the Lord's presence. It, it very well may. And just because a congregation is small doesn't mean it doesn't have the Lord's presence. But you see, that's counterintuitive to our normal way of thinking. You know, a little tiny church, well, where's, why is the Lord not working? This big, huge, massive church, well, obviously the Lord's working there. Well, no, that's the farthest thing from the truth. The, the two, the equation doesn't work. The, the math is wrong, right? The, you factor out the presence and the power of God. You can develop an organization without God's power, without God's presence. But you can't develop a true church, a true body of believers as the Bible describes it, without the power and the presence of God. We're desperate for it. We have to have it. But we learn in here in these verses that sin will drive God's presence away. It always does. Sin drives the presence of God away from his people. So the people recognized this devastating truth. It's something, you look at verse 4, and when the people heard these evil tidings, they mourned. They mourned. Now it's interesting, we're not told, we don't know what happened in the aftermath of the slaying of those 3,000. Maybe they mourned there, we hope they would, they ought to have, but the Bible doesn't tell us that they mourned at the slaying of the 3,000, but they mourned at the news that God was going to remove his presence. And so that leads me to the second thing here, and that is repentance invites the Lord's presence. Sin removes the Lord's presence, but repentance invites the Lord's presence. And we see the beginning of their repentance here in verse number 4. When the people heard these evil tidings, they mourned. And no man did put on his ornaments. And you go on through verse 5 and 6, and we, we read this about their ornaments, and they, they cast off their ornaments. Uh, this is basically the same idea that we read in Scripture of repenting in sackcloth and ashes. It's the same idea. But their repentance was tangible. Their repentance was something that was recognizable. They were humbling themselves before the Lord. At this news that God was going to remove himself from them, he humbled, they humbled themselves before the Lord. When we understand what the scripture has to say about repentance, one of the things that we learn is that repentance itself is the gift of God. 2 Timothy 2.25, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God, peradventure, will grant them repentance unto the acknowledging of the truth. God is the one that grants repentance. You don't repent on your own. You don't repent without a work of grace in your heart. Great, or repentance is a gift of God. And this is an encouraging thing for us, because even though God had told them, I'm going to remove my presence from you, he hadn't yet. He was obviously still with them. 
or they wouldn't have repented. And so God was still with them. God was still faithful to them. And he granted them this heart of repentance, this this mourning over their sin. And the tangible manifestation of that repentance was evidence. Was evidence of it. God is slow to wrath, is he not? God is plenteous in mercy. And even in the statement of his wrath to them, that led them to repentance. This is an evidence of the Lord's grace. Are we not told in the Proverbs, my son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. Here the children of Israel, when they receive the correction from God, when they receive this word of, of rebuke and this word of punishment, they humbled themselves under it. They didn't despise the chastening of the Lord. It's a foolish thing to refuse the Lord's correction. It's a foolish thing to, to despise that. And here we see a tangible manifestation uh, with this ornaments, this this true repentance. But we see more. We see more from that. Their hearts were broken. And we see a further evidence of their repentance starting in verse number 7. It says, And Moses took the tabernacle and pitched it without the camp. Now, you you read that word tabernacle, and it's easy for our brain to, to go immediately to that proper structure that we think of as the tabernacle with the curtain all the way around it and the holy place, and where the altar and labor, and that whole tabernacle structure that was the tabernacle in the wilderness. Well, in Exodus 33, that had not yet been built. The instructions for it had been given. Chapter 25, 26, 27, in there, we we read of the Lord giving Moses the instructions of how it ought to be built. But it's not till you come to chapter 35 to 37 in there, um, the man Bezalel was the one that the Lord specifically uh, empowered and enabled to build all this. And it's, it's later that that actual structure of the tabernacle was built. And, so, and, and also another thing, that tabernacle that was built later, that's a different Hebrew word that's used for that tabernacle. The word that's used here in Exodus 33 is really just simply the Hebrew word for a tent. Um, I think the easiest way to understand this and, and what works in my brain, your brain might not work this way, but this was Moses' prayer tent. Let's just call it that. This was, this was Moses' prayer tent. This is where Moses went to seek the Lord. I don't think it was his house tent. It was Moses' prayer tent. So let's just use that to help us understand what was going on here. But what it shows is God's separateness from sin. God is not associated with sin. And so in in the sin and the people being stiff-necked by object lesson, Moses had to take his, his place where he met with the Lord and he had to set that up outside of the camp of Israel. The camp of Israel was, you know, like a clock. The the Lord's presence was in the middle. And, you know. 12 to 1 was one tribe, 1 to 2 was another tribe, and they were camped around where the Lord manifested his presence. And because of their sin, Moses had to go outside of the camp to seek the Lord. Because the Lord is not in the presence of sin. The Lord separated himself from that. And the people recognized that it was their sinfulness that drove the Lord away, that drove the Lord's presence away. And so Moses goes out, And he intercedes on behalf of the people and he prays and he seeks the Lord. And the people recognizing 
their sinfulness. And you see in verse 9 that, I'm sorry, verse 8, and when this happened, when Moses went into that tent to pray, the people, as it were, standing at their own tent doors, watching what Moses was doing, understanding that Moses was going there to intercede for them, to pray for them, they stood at their door and they watched Moses, and it says they worshiped the Lord. Again, I think this is evidence of their heart of contrition, their, their humility before the God of heaven. Understanding that it, it's, it's our sin that has brought us to this place. How can we undo this? How can this be fixed? How can this be helped? Moses, pray for us. But this is all their repentance. This is all evidence, uh, manifest evidence, demonstrating their desire for the Lord's presence to be with them. It's as, if, it's as if they were there in their tent watching Moses being able to be in the presence of God Himself and longing for that themselves. Understanding that it was because of their sin that this had happened. But it's their repentance that invites the Lord's presence back. And so that's where I want us to come lastly this evening. One final thought. And that is that Christ's intercession secures the Lord's presence. Christ's intercession secures the Lord's presence. Now I say Christ's intercession instead of Moses because Moses operates here as a type of Christ. But we see in this passage Moses interceding for the people. Back in chapter 32, Moses even prays to the Lord for the people after their sin, repenting of that sin. Moses says, blot me out of thy book. You save these people, but blot me out. And the Lord tells Moses, I'm not going to blot you out. I'm going to block, block the people out that have sinned, not you. But here Moses, this is the heart of intercession that Moses has for his people, on behalf of his people that he's leading. And Moses here goes in to intercede. But look at the substance of this intercession, verse 12. Moses said unto the Lord, See, thou sayest unto me, bring up this people. And thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Now, in chapter 23, he had promised the angel of the Lord. He had promised Christ to go before them to, to clear the land. And now it's just some angel. And Moses says, who is this? Who is this that you're sending? The middle of verse 12, yet thou hast said, I know thee by name, and thou hast also found grace in my sight. Lord, this is the promise that you had made to me. You made a promise that you know me by name. Interpret that. You've, you've made a promise that we're in a covenant together. And, and you've told me that I've found grace in your sight. And now you're going to throw me off? Now you're going to throw the people off? Verse 13, now therefore I pray thee, since, since I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight. And consider, remember, that this nation is thy people. Lord, you've made a covenant with these people. Lord, you're merciful. You're gracious. You've promised to be merciful. And you promised to be gracious. And now what are you doing? Why are you casting us off now? We've sinned. We repent of that. Be merciful and be gracious to us again. And so what Moses is appealing to here is that covenant relationship that God had with them. 
And even though they had sinned, they were still the people of God. They were still the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses is basically arguing, Lord, we found grace in your sight before. Can we not find grace in your sight again? Can you not be merciful? Can you not be gracious again? And look at the response in verse 14. And the Lord said, My presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. I've heard your prayer. I've heard your intercession. I will be merciful to you. I will be gracious to you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to go. And Moses' response in verse 15 is that great text that we know. Moses says, well, Lord, if you don't go with us, then we're not going. Because if you don't go with us, we're toast. We're destitute. We, we can't go forward without you. We're desperate for your presence. We have to have that presence. Look at the logic in verse 16, what Moses argues to the Lord. And I mentioned this already, but look at what he says here. For, for wherein shall it be known that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? How are the, how are the heathen going to know that we're your people? How are the heathen going to know that we found grace in your sight? Is it not that you're with us? Is it not that you go with us? So shall we be separated? That word separated, if, if you're looking at another version, it, it uses the word distinct. So shall we be distinct. If we don't have the presence of God, then we're no different from the heathen. They don't have any God. I mean, they're, they're worshiping nonsense. They're worshiping stones and rocks and trees and foolishness. And if your presence is not with us, then we're no different than them. We're, we're just, we're nothing without you. This is the argument that he's making. And he says, this is how the people of the earth are going to know that we're different from them. Because we have the presence of God, and they don't. We have the Lord on our side. We have the creator of heaven and earth as our captain, as our king, and as our ruler. And without God's presence, they would have just simply been no different than the godless nations all around them. And the proof, the proof that they had actually found grace in the eyes of the Lord was that the Lord was granting back his presence. And the Lord did. So verse 17, And the Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken, for thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. This is an answer to Moses' prayer. Moses said, is it not true that you, you, you said you know be my name? You, you, you've said we're in covenant together. You've, you've promised to go with us. And the Lord says, I'm going to do what I've said. I'm going to restore that fellowship. I'm going to restore that presence. I'm going to, to give you again back that power. Without the Lord's presence, we're nothing. This is what we were considering last Wednesday during our prayer meeting. And even some during the pre-service prayer time were referencing that that we looked at in John 15 when Christ said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Without me, you can do nothing. This isn't different. Without me, you can do nothing. Moses understood what Christ said before Christ said it. Without me, you can't do nothing. Moses understood. The people understood. Without the presence of God, we're destitute. We can't have anything. What we need is a congregation and what we need is individuals is 
the Lord's presence. I would argue to you that without the Lord's presence in this place, we're no better than any other civic organization that meets. We're not any better than any other social club that would gather together, you know, a couple times a month. If we don't have the Lord's presence, then we're just a bunch of friends that get together that sing for a little bit and listen to a man talk for 45 minutes if we don't have the Lord's presence. We're desperate to have the Lord with us. That was the feeling that Moses expressed when he said to the Lord, if thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. That was the seriousness with which Moses took the need for the Lord's presence. Moses understood that the Lord's presence was vital, was vital for them. And in prayer, Moses was striving with the Lord to manifest that presence and not to leave them. And the Lord heard his prayer. The Lord's merciful. The Lord's gracious. May the Lord give each of us a greater desire to sense and to know his presence with us daily in our own lives. We're in desperate need of that. And we can't accomplish anything successful for the Lord without it. So may the Lord grant it. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we are thankful tonight for your word that you've given to us. And we do pray that we would know that sense of your presence, that sense of your power. Just daily in the ordinary, mundane things of life, we're not, we're not necessarily praying for some extraordinary thing. We just need power to live as Christians. We were considering this morning that phrase from 1 Corinthians 15 of what it is to always abound in the work of the Lord. And the quotation from that one man who said it simply to exercise every Christian virtue. Lord, we need your presence in order to exercise every Christian virtue. How can we continue on? How can we do anything? How can we accomplish anything for your glory without your presence with us? We pray that you would save us from seeking to go forward in the arm of the flesh. Lord, grant your presence day by day. May we know it. We thank you for this season of the year that we are coming upon, this time of thanksgiving. We pray that of all the people of the earth, you would make us to be a thankful people. That during this week, we would reflect on the good things that you have given to us, the good gifts that we know from your hand. You've told us that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And we acknowledge that and we thank you for it. And we pray that you would make us to pause during this week and truly reflect on what we have in Christ the great benefits of our redemption. We pray for strength and energy to meet each task, help us in the workplace, help us in our homes. And we ask all this in Jesus' name.